I wanted to become the kind of person who could help people work through their questions and their challenges, having worked through things myself then. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today I'm speaking in good faith with Dr. Dale M. Coulter, Associate Professor at Regent University School of Divinity in Virginia Beach. Interestingly, a medievalist by training. Dr. Coulter, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You are on campus today presenting this evening a presentation that at least the poster calls Half a Billion Strong and Growing, A Look at Global Pentecostal Charismatic Christianity. Right. And I am a Pentecostal. I grew up in the movement on my mother's side of the family. It actually goes back to the beginning of the movement. So I was sort of brought into that. And even though I'm a medievalist by training, because I'm a Pentecostal, I've written a lot about Pentecostalism. And that's been why I'm sort of here sort of presenting that. Let's go back to what you said on your mother's side. When you grew up, was church, it sounds like church was definitely a part of your home life. There is no doubt. We were going to church come rain or shine. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a strong church-centered family. I was adopted, so my two older brothers were natural-born. My parents couldn't have any more, so I was adopted into that and then raised. Interestingly enough, the church was kind of became known for adoptions, a lot of adoptions at this church. So I grew up in that environment, learning, memorizing Scripture verses in Sunday school, worshiping with people. And in a Pentecostal church, there's a lot of liveliness to a mm -hmm. church experience. Sometimes people would dance. Sometimes people would shout. Sometimes they would stand up and testify at the end of service. So that was really my experience kind of growing up. Did you have a time in that growing up where you actually had to question, I've been taught this, I've grown up in it, but do I believe it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. For me, the first time I started to wrestle with these things was really my oldest brother. I have two older brothers, one of whom was 10 years older than me. And uh, when he, just after he turned 20, he committed suicide. Mm. That had a massive impact on me and my family. And I remember watching my father wondering, where are you, God, in the middle of all of this? You know, this Pentecostal family, experiencing the presence and power of God. And suddenly this happens. And my brother, Dwayne was his name. He, he had a lot of questioning himself. We have a picture of him with a Bible open. He was reading the Bible to try and get ammunition against my parents. And I actually remember lots of arguments mm. over Christianity between him and my parents. So watching my parents questioning where God was in the midst of that as a 10-year-old and then going forward, listening to my brother questioning my parents. That really was the first time in which I was trying to figure out, well, what is all of this about? Where is God in the middle of all of this? How do I think about this? And really, I point back to that experience as probably the first way in which my calling came into existence, because I remember one of the conclusions I drew from that was, I wanted to become the kind of person who could help people work through 
their questions and their challenges. Having worked through things myself then, that was really the foundation of what would blossom into me becoming an academic. It just began with, uh, here are some real pastoral challenges. We don't know how to think about them. I want to help people think through them. So that was really the first time that my family and I wrestled with the question of providence and all of that. And that is such a deep and painful Mm. moment to have to deal with. It really is. It was a life-defining moment. It continues to define me. It defines the way I think about suicide and people who experience depression and all that corresponds to that. It defines the way I think about, you know, when I was a, became a college professor and first started teaching, one of the first experiences I remember was I suddenly related to my brother Duane in a different way. Up to that point in my life, I had related to him as a 10-year-old boy does to his older brother who was 10 years older than me. And then when I started teaching 18 to 21-year-olds, it's finally hit me, that's what he was. Which seems so young when you arrive there. Right. <laughs> um, so I approached him in a very different way, and it actually helped me to connect to 18 to 21-year-olds as a young professor, to say they're like my brother, struggling with life, trying to figure out where their place is in the world. My job is to help them figure out their place in the world. So it defined me in a lot of ways. Were there moments or experiences that made you, that you held on as anchors and said, this is why I believe there is a God? Yeah. So this may be a very Pentecostal story. I don't know. But one of the immediate questions you ask is, where is your loved one? Having lost him or her under those circumstances. The way my brother committed suicide was through carbon monoxide poisoning in the car. So it wasn't an immediate death. He had time. And when we went through the car, we found a note where he had written, I have peace like a river, which my mother took as an initial sign that God somehow had reached out to him in the midst of that. And then, interestingly enough, my brother was very much into drama, poetry. He had written a poem that he had submitted to a competition in my denomination. You know, young Pentecostals were be part of this competition some musicians he had submitted his poetry it had gotten an honorable mention six years after he'd submitted it four years after he had died that it suddenly was published in the youth magazine of our denomination we had no idea who published it or why it was published or how it even got published and the final lines were not written by him the final lines said something to the effect of and with him life is now more real than it has been my mother And my family took that as God saying to us, I've got him. Mm. I've got him. At that moment, we, we rested. We just rested in the knowledge that in the midst of the horrendous nature of the tragedy, in the midst of the depression, God somehow penetrated the clouds of darkness in his mind and reached out to him. And God, through that poem and that extra line, reminded us that he was in control of all things. And... We've sort of never looked back from that moment, but that has really changed the way my theology of suicide kind of unfolded, where one of the standard Christian ideas in the tradition has been that suicide victims automatically are damned. I have drawn very different conclusions about that, in part because of the experience in my family and the way in which we felt like God spoke to us through that publication later. In whatever thing we have to leave in the hands of God and receive some peace, 
That in itself, being able to do that to me is evidence of our faith, because if we did not believe someone was there, how could we leave it in their hands knowing? Right. You know, I never went to the life is an arbitrary experience. We live in a mindless universe, and we're just trying to make it the best we can. And I never went to that conclusion. I just, I guess growing up in church, seeing God touch people in so many ways, it would have been very difficult for me to go there. In Pentecostal circles, it's not just about the rationality of the faith, it's about the experience of the faith as well. And I knew that I had experienced God in the midst of the people of God. That really sustained me through the rational sort of questioning that I had. So I never went to certain places as a result of that. But you're right. I mean, in the midst of it, it was more like, God, why did you let this happen? How are you bringing us out of this? Where are you finding good in all of this? How are you? But we we came through it. And the message through the poem was a reminder to us that God was bringing good out of all of this. And it's really sort of helped me to see even the way God providentially works. I've come to the conclusion that we're shaped today by the prayers that were uttered by our ancestors a hundred years ago, not because they knew how those prayers would shape us, but because the God to whom they uttered them knew. He both saw them and saw us simultaneously. And so he's able to take their prayers a hundred years ago and impact us. So I knew that God had adopted me into a family, knowing full well that they would lose a son, and that had brought me into this family to help this family. So it was just a, it just changed the way I thought about God and providence. In our correspondence, you mentioned adoption being one of your turning points. Is that what you're referring to there? Yes. I mean, it's, it's impacted my life in a lot of ways. It's made me connect more to people who are going through things because I recognize I was literally saved, not just spiritually. My own adoption and my Pentecostalism has really helped me in a lot of ways think and connect more closely to minority, ethnic minorities, and to gender discussions, gender debates. Being an adopted person and having my life be tenuous at a particular moment helps me to connect and see how ethnic minorities, African Americans, Latinos, Latinas, that sort of thing, the fight and struggle for survival. When your life is under threat, there is a kind of anger that you have about that threat to your existence. And so that really has, my adoption has really helped me to see that in ways that some people don't understand. So in that way, being adopted has really shaped the way I think about and given me a strong calling and connection to African-Americans, Latinos, Latinas, all that. My Pentecostalism feeds into that because the whole idea of Acts is that the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, and therefore everyone is gifted by the Spirit, and therefore everyone can lead. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're an immigrant. It doesn't matter. No, we're all equal at the table. And when I look at, for example, in early Pentecostalism, what happened at the Azusa Street Revival— You have African-Americans and Latinos, Latinas, and Caucasians all mixing together, laying hands on one another, praying for one another, that sort of thing. It's just like what happens in a camp meeting in a tent. There's no slave balcony in a tent. We're all on the same floor. We're all in the same dust, and we're sweating and crying and praying together. So my Pentecostalism compels me to connect even more so to 
minorities and to say, yeah, this is what the kingdom is is about. And if we're not about racial reconciliation as part of the kingdom, then in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ, and we've lost something on the kingdom. I spoke at uh, College of African American Bishops last year, and after worship in the chapel, I just got up in front of them and I said, when I stepped into this place and sang these songs and listened to the sermon preached, I said to myself, these are my people. This is where I belong. And that's because we worship the same spirit, the same spirit of God who was there. I mean, that's the way Pentecost, that's the beauty from one of the beauties of Pentecostalism for me. And so my own adoption and my Pentecostalism has really shaped the way I think about issues of racism and sexism and things like that in society and how we as Christians really should be approaching them. Your hearers might be interested in this is, so I have three natural children. So the first time I laid eyes on my firstborn was the first time I ever saw anyone who looked like me in the world. Mm. And that was a significant moment in my life. I saw my toes in her toes. <laughs> as and simple as that. It's so simple, but I saw that she reflected me. She, she imaged me, as it were. That idea really gave me some insight into God, the way in which God sees himself in us and the way we reflect and image him, and that sense of connection and continuity we have with God as a result of that image. For me, it was just all about that I found a place. She's mine. I see it, her in me, and I see me in her. And it was just a powerful connection, point of connection for me. Mm. What are the personal spiritual practices or observances that help you feel like you are in touch with the divine? Hmm. Well, growing up Pentecostal, I mean, we strongly emphasize that you ought to be experiencing God. And when I say experience, I mean grace ought to be conscious, tangible, in some way that you know. It's not that grace is hidden in the recesses of your soul where the church tells you because you've been baptized, you've experienced grace. Whether you know it or not, it's there. We're telling you, theologically, it's there. <laughs> Within my circles, it's more, it's not there until you know it, you experience and it. And it's manifest. It's in manifest way. in some way. You know, Pentecostals believe in speaking in tongues. It's speaking in tongues. It is seeing someone healed by the power of God. It is seeing someone delivered from drug addiction, from alcoholism, from some form of sexual addiction, something like that. And when I say delivered, I don't just simply mean over time. I mean someone who goes down to an altar, prays, and gets up and never wants a drug for the rest of their lives in this instantaneous way. Not with everyone, of course, but there are those stories. So all of that sort of frames you in a world where God ought to be consciously experienced and your participation with God is part of this and flows in and out of that. So my devotional life gets shaped around that. Of course, there are standard kind of devotional practices that I think a lot of people engage in, reading scriptures, praying, common worship, that sort of thing. For me, it's always – it's not just about learning more about God, information download, as it were. It's always about trying to touch, to connect, to experience, to more deeply immerse myself into the presence of God. And I think about my theology that way, too. For me, the goal of theology is not simply to offer a grand description 
of what Christians might believe about X, Y, and Z. Really, theology comes out of my own vision of who God is, and that vision of who God is is a direct result of my experience of the presence and power of God in my own life. Which seems like a wonderful partnership with the scholarship to make it relevant. That, to me, is the way we hold together spirituality and theology. You know, it's both a result of my own Pentecostalism and when I studied the Middle Ages, I found, well, sure enough, this is exactly what medieval Christians thought. Even the greatest theologians of them still had these powerful experiences. Bonaventure is one of the most significant uh, medieval theologians. He has a vision of God on Mount Laverna in Italy, and he writes in light of that vision. So for me, I mean, that's kind of what I want to write out of my own vision of God, my interior imaginative reconstruction of who this God is, what he's doing, how he's at work in the world. And so my devotional life is usually, I don't divorce scholarship and spirituality. I'm picturing medieval monks in a hermitage, and then I'm picturing a Pentecostal congregation. And I find it interesting that uh, your bio says a medievalist by training much of his work has centered on the 12th century Abbey of St. Victor with a monograph on Richard of St. Victor. But I feel like I'm hearing you say you found things there that you relate to that are relevant to your current experience. It really helped me understand my own Pentecostalism to, to look at Christianity through a medieval lens, helped me to exegete or interpret my Pentecostalism and make sense of it in ways that I hadn't been able to do so before then, in part because Pentecostal theology doesn't always fit with all sides of Protestantism and especially Protestant evangelicalism. There are certain theological ways of framing things in evangelicalism that don't connect to Pentecostal theology. I went to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary, which is within the Reformed tradition, Presbyterianism and all that. Wonderful place, great experience, but I found that a lot of the theology didn't quite fit. When I went and studied the Middle Ages, suddenly I saw a theology that it told me that I fit, but it helped me to think through these things in a deeper way. I saw a theology that never divorced head and heart and hands. Those Mm. three things, our beliefs, our behavior, our actions in the world, our affections and our emotions and desires, all of those are part of the transformation of the human person. And looking at the Abbey of St. Victor and seeing the way they were trying to develop a holistic way of thinking about things, Hugh of St. Victor has this wonderful saying, learn everything, he says. You will see that there is nothing that is not of value. A miserly knowledge is not worth it. It's not Mm. joyful is what he says. That's the way I approach things. I want to learn everything. I want to integrate it all because it's all part of the return to this vision of God. I really do believe that the saints in heaven simultaneously see God and see all things in and through their vision of God. So our scholarship ought to be about that right now. That's how learning and faith and learning are integrated. Our science, our psychology, our sociology, our all these different disciplines, we're all contributing to a grander vision. And that vision one day will be taken up into the truth of who God is, and we'll see it all at once. So 
That's what the studying the Abbey of St. Victor helped me to see. I'm wondering if it was easier to know everything in the 12th century than it is today. <laughs> there is no doubt it was. <laughs> no doubt it was. Today, we only do so through conversations with colleagues in different disciplines who can tell us. Uh-huh. Um, the 12th century uh, was a very different time. There, there is no doubt about that. But the basic approach is what I enjoy, even if there is no human being that can be a renaissance man, as it were, or woman today. Because faith, I believe, and you can correct me, is a journey for each of us, as you say, learning mm-hmm. and gaining experiences and having opportunities to exercise faith. What do you know or believe differently now than you knew 20, 30 years ago? Another great question. There are different ways of answering that question. Let me start in this way. I believe a lot of different things about myself and how God works in my life that's different because of my own experience of trying to live out this journey and the starts and the stops and the two steps forward, three steps back kind of thing. So just to give you an example of the way the call of God unfolded in my life, I remember as a teenager thinking maybe God had called me to go into ministry in some way. And uh, I had a cousin who was already in college um, studying for the ministry. And I remember he said to me, look, if you think that God's called you, why don't you just in your prayer say, God, I accept. Whatever you want, I accept. So I did. And when I said that, I sensed strongly the power and presence of God come upon me. Out of that, I felt like God had called me to pastor. So I went to the university, did four years there with the aim of studying to be a pastor. In university, I became enamored with theology, and I wanted to study more deeply. And there's something else that happened in university that uh, was significant for me. We had a guy, a bishop, or superintendent, maybe a better way of putting it, in our church over Europe who came and spoke to a ministerial association I was part of. And he said, you know, Europe needs missionaries too, but it's a different kind of missionary altogether. This is a missionary of the mind. And when he said that, I felt like God Mm. started saying something to me, that I needed to get to Europe. Was that Uh, exciting or scary? It was both. Both. (laughs) Both. Exciting and scary at the same time. I didn't know how. I didn't know, you know, I just knew Mm -hmm. that I had this strong impression in my mind that this is what I was supposed to be doing. It just so happened that the university had started a semester in Europe program. I became a member of the second cohort in that program. It was grounded in Cambridge, went to Cambridge. We had a trip to Oxford. And when I was in Oxford for just a weekend, God spoke to me again there and said, Oxford. It was so strong for me that it began to define everything, so much so that I later would go on to meet my wife, and we got married right after we graduated. But before we got married, I told her, I said, you just need to know something. I don't know when, and I don't know how, but we're going to Oxford, because this is what God said to me. And she sort of said what most spouses would say, <laughs> great, that's fine, thinking, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'll let him say it. But I went to seminary in Orlando, and one of the faculty members that got hired my second year was Frank James, who is now a a president of a seminary, Biblical Theological Seminary. It's now called Missio Theological Seminary. He had just graduated from Oxford, studied under Alistair McGrath. And suddenly, I thought, God's opening doors. I ended up only applying to Oxford, never applied to any other PhD program, which is not standard advice on how this is supposed to work out, and got in. And... uh, It's just God, right? I just, this is God. I still in my mind had thought, I'm probably going to be a pastor, but I'll have one leg in the church, one leg in the the academy. 
But when I got to Oxford, the call of God took a different turn. I started to feel a strong sense that I was supposed to write, and I started writing. Up to that point, I had thought of the call of God in two ways. Number one, God had called me to be in the church. And number two, then God had called me to Oxford. That call to Oxford sort of tripped me up because it was so strong, so powerful. It so defined my life that I started to reframe the call in that way. So what's the next place, God? As I sort, what is, and there wasn't a next place. I went on to teach at my alma mater. Now I'm teaching at Regent. And I never felt a strong call to go to either of those places necessarily. Um, it wasn't until I went to Regent, in fact, that God sort of helped me to see that the call is no longer to a place. It's now to a task mm. that can be done at many places. Um, and that the call to write at Oxford was part of that call to a task that could be done. Which has resulted in both books and many scholarly articles in right, so it has driven me. So now I'm driven to write in a way that I, I wasn't. And that is sort of solidified my call to the academy. Um, even though I stay in the church, I'm still connected to the church, I preach, I minister, but I feel that the primary call is in the academy and writing. Um, so my own journey of faith has – that's one way in which my theology of how God functions and how God works and how the call unfolds has changed in light of that experience itself. The other way for me is the more I study, there are always periods in which you question things. You question why has this happened to this person? Why has that happened in the world, God? I don't understand this or that. That kind of questioning has always been part of my own journey, uh, especially in light of the suicide of my brother. It's been framed from the beginning. It's never been a debilitating part of my journey would be a way I'm going to frame that. Um, Insofar as it's never been a crippling, crushing, it's always been a positive form of questioning that has taken me deeper and has really brought me to this conclusion I don't ever have to be afraid of questioning. God's big. God can handle all the questions I throw at him, number one. Number two, if God is truth, (laughs) the pursuit of the truth is what God wants me to do. It's part of the calling of God. So that has really led me to deepen and broaden my understanding of Pentecostalism in a way that has been deeply impacted by Catholic theology, has been deeply impacted by Orthodox theology, has been deeply impacted by all these other theological traditions. You know, sometimes my wife teases me that, you know, Dale, the Pentecostalism that you know is is a Pentecostalism in your own mind. It's not really the <laughs> one you grew up with. Um, she's got a point there. I've changed my way of thinking about God a lot. But I hope that my Pentecostal brothers and sisters would recognize my understanding of God as a deeper way of thinking about it. So that's the other way, I suppose, in which my own journey of faith has changed the way I think about God and um, what God's doing in the world. Have you had to face particular challenges uh, in scholarship or just in life or in society because of being one who professes belief? Yeah, that's another really, really good question. So there are two ways of approaching that question. One is personal struggles. The other is external barriers, two different types of challenges, external barriers. Let me take the latter first. You know, growing up Pentecostal in a conservative evangelical Protestant world, there are times where I have faced external challenges of trying to communicate my Pentecostalism to others. 
And sometimes people have, even very kind persons have misunderstood my Pentecostalism Mm. in the larger evangelical world. I had one professor who was a very dear professor who wrote a recommendation to help me get into Oxford. But I remember one time asking, what do you think about Pentecostal? He said, what do you mean? A bunch of irrational, experientially driven Christians who probably owe more to the liberal German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher than anything else. Is that what you mean? (laughs) Oh, okay. You've said all I need to know about what you think about us. Of course, he didn't think about me personally that way. I was in his classes. I was performing well. Some of those kinds of challenges of trying to figure out who I was as a Pentecostal in a world sometimes felt like I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Didn't always fit. Which in some ways is surprising because of the very event recorded in Acts of Pentecost. I mean, we all should connect with that at some place. That's true, and we do, but that event has been integrated into a number of different theological systems, which Mm. then become the mechanisms by which that event is interpreted. Ah. And then on top of that, you have these historical debates that have unfolded. For example, in this country, in evangelicalism, there's the what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy that broke apart these Protestant denominations, Northern Baptists broke apart. Presbyterian denominations broke apart. And the result of all that is the emergence of mainline denominations, and then evangelicalism out of that sort of debate. So it tells us about what happened, but not what should happen. But in my own Pentecostal upbringing, it did tell us what should happen. This is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right. We should be actively seeking to have our own personal Pentecost. But that idea that Acts is history, not theology, was an interpretive position connected to particular theological systems. The other is the the idea of cessationism, that there are these spiritual gifts and, and miracles and all that that were part of the first century. But once the church got established, those gifts were no longer needed, and therefore they went away. Well, Pentecostals said, no, they didn't go away. They're mm-hmm. here. So that theological position, which I encountered in seminary, presented a way of reading. So you know, the upshot of all of this is that our theological systems do shape the way we read and interpret these texts. My Pentecostalism feeds into that because the whole idea of Acts is that the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, and therefore everyone is gifted by the Spirit, and therefore everyone can lead. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're an immigrant. It doesn't matter. No, we're all equal at the table. And when I look at, for example, in early Pentecostalism, what happened at the Azusa Street Revival— You have African-Americans and Latinos, Latinas, and Caucasians all mixing together, laying hands on one another, praying for one another, that sort of thing. It's just like what happens in a camp meeting in a tent. There's no slave balcony in a tent. We're all on the same floor. We're all in the same dust, and we're sweating and crying and praying together. So my Pentecostalism compels me to connect even more so to minorities and to say, yeah, this is what the kingdom is is about. And if we're not about racial reconciliation as part of the kingdom, that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ, then we've lost something on the kingdom. So for me, then, writing and ministering is in part—I was I spoke at uh, College of African-American Bishops last year— 
And after worship in the chapel, I just got up in front of him and I said, when I stepped into this place and sang these songs and listened to the sermon preached, I said to myself, these are my people. This is where I belong. And that's because we worship the same spirit, the same spirit of God who was there. I mean, that's the way Pentecostal, that's the beauty from one of the beauties of Pentecostalism for me. And so my own adoption and my Pentecostalism has really shaped the way I think about issues of racism and sexism and things like that in society and how we as Christians really should be approaching them. One way in which I have been able to move beyond and really, I think, strengthen my own Pentecostalism, more firmly grounded, is reading broadly outside of Pentecostalism, reading Reformed folks and reading Catholics and reading Orthodox. And those actually have helped me come to a deeper appreciation of Christianity as a whole and even of my own place as a Pentecostal in this. If I can use this analogy, I think of Christian tradition as a great river. Pentecostalism is one stream off of that river, and I can swim back up the stream and find the great river again if I'm willing to do that. Hmm. And in finding that great river, I find the place of my stream and this vast river that it's part of, that deepens it and broadens it and anchors it. But our theological systems can blind us to that if we're not careful. We can think that our tributary is the river when it's just a tributary. So, I mean, that would be, I'd, I think, why Acts gets read in lots of different ways mm. instead of just a straightforward way in which you sort of presented it a few moments ago. Dale M. Coulter is Associate Professor of Historical Theology in the School of Divinity at Regent University, also an ordained minister in the Church of God. Dale, thank you so much for speaking with me in good faith. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Dale M. Coulter, for generously sharing his stories and his faith. To hear the full interview, visit our website at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to the podcast. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon right here in Good Faith.